For years, we've aspired to gather our far-flung universe of listeners and readers in the flesh. Now, in partnership with the new 1440 Multiversity in the hills and redwood forests of Santa Cruz County, it's finally happening. Join me for our very first On Being gathering, three days of conversation, poetry, and community with beloved teachers from the show and the blog and the entire On Being team. Special guests will include Maria Popova, Seth Godin, David White, Naomi Shihab Nye, Omid Safi, and Parker Palmer. Together, we'll take up the possibilities of this moment to generatively inhabit the spaces of our lives and renew common life in a fractured world. To find out more, visit onbeing.org gather. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Mathieu Ricard. Listen to our produced show with him wherever you find your podcasts and, as always, at onbeing.org. Ready? Fent? Yes, sir. Okay. Come on in. Hello. Hello. I'm Trent Gillis. Actually, yeah. to meet you. Actually, yeah. should be right out. Um, we'll have you sit here, please. Actually, before you sit, the uh, morning. Good morning. Hi. Yes. Good to see you again. Okay. So you may not know this, but we've been working with your colleagues for a long time. Yes, we have set, set this up. Yeah. We, but I wanted to interview you in person, and so we. I think we've been talking to them for a year to find out when you are going to be in the States or Canada. Oh, okay. So we've been following you around. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, sorry for that. Oh, no, that's all right. <laughs> I'm teasing. <laughs> I didn't know I was the cause of so much. <laughs> Lots of energy expenses. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about the show. It's on. We're on U.S. Public Radio. Yes. NPR. So that comes to all the different states and like that. Right. Well, we're on 220 stations, so we're on most of the major markets. And oh. The show is relatively in the public radio universe. Um, it's We're in our infancy. A lot of the shows have been on t 20 or 30 years. Mm. We've been on um, six years. Mm -hmm. We won Peabody last year, and we've, uh, we have about a million listeners, I think, between podcast and radio. Wonderful. And this is called Public Radio's Program on Religion, Meaning, Ethics, and Ideas. And I think that we've kind of evolved into that, and it's become more and more expansive, and also being expensive. Expensive. Oh, expensive. Yes, expensive too. But <laughs> um, and we've interviewed quite a few people who you intersect with, um, Thich Nhat Hanh, um, mm -hmm. John Kabat-Zinn recently. Sure. Um, Fine. I was trying. Esther Sternberg has she been involved who? in the, Esther Sternberg has she no, been involved no. in the mind and life? Uh, no. John, I know very well. Of John, course. he was fantastic. Um, you know, over the years, Sharon Salzberg and mm -hmm. Joseph Goldstein are yeah, very early well. on, and you know, it's a small world. Right. So you have a like a weekly broadcast. Yes, or? it's a weekly program. Mm -hmm. It's hour long. It's an hour long program, and we do a real conversation. So that's why this. And it's uh, 
podcast several times or one time? Yes. It, what happens is we put it up on the satellite on Thursdays, mm -hmm. and then it's broadcast on radio stations at different times for the following week. But we it also goes live online, mm -hmm. and we have a big web presence, mm -hmm. and uh, Trent is our online editor, and that's why we have visuals as well. Oh, right. So it And the programs, because they're big big ideas and real conversation they have a long life people mm, yes people and which is a wonderful thing about it's technology not like about, hmm? it's not about like two days no and so, but this is this we're actually videotaping but the program itself the interview will be edited and I'll introduce you and give people enough I, I like to have a conversation at a high level But then well, part whatever, of my... Whichever height I can climb. <laughs> well, no, just, I mean, as, at a sophisticated conversation, not a really simplistic conversation. Right. But then the in the production, I have I make it accessible to whoever might be listening. And, you know, so people who might... That? Well, that's part of what we've learned. So anyway, okay. yeah. So that's, do you have any, any questions or no? And Penny and Bill George are some of our funders as oh, well. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, so. Yeah. I don't yeah. know if they'll be in Washington. Hmm? I wrote Penny just before I came to see if she'd be here. But and I no, think she's not. She's not yeah, she I think she is going to be in Washington. Okay. Yeah. Are, how long are you going somewhere else? Oh, I'm soon? going everywhere. Oof. Do you travel a lot I'm of the time? I'm going to Montreal to yeah. translate in French for the Dalai Lama. Then mm -hmm. I'm going to New York for two days to record. I have a book on the art of meditations coming out. Is it coming year. out in English? It's coming out in, in UK in January. Okay. And. Uh, Head publication, but it's so slow in I October. Know. And there's a big timeline. So, but I'm recording some some speech, right. not the reading the book, but some free talk mm -hmm. on New York. Then I go to Washington, then San Francisco, then Miami, then back to Europe, then running, then. Possibly one small break, but. Yeah. Then I'm. Yeah. Um, I've also interviewed a couple of people f uh, who you might know, uh, Jean Vanier and Xavier Lapichon. Do you know them? Jean Vanier is the, the Larche. Yes. Yeah, I'm in great admiration for him. I wanted to meet him. It never happened. Yeah. He's Wonder he must be wonderful. He is wonderful. Yeah. He's, very he's Canadian, of course, but he lives in France most of the time. Well, his work I, I thought was in France, but I know mm -hmm. also something in yeah. Canada. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, are, can we do this, or what would you do? Would you like some tea? Or uh, we have tea. We have coffee. We have mm, tea. Would be more. good. All Just right. sort of um, why don't you black tea? If you have. Yes. What do we have? I don't know. Well, water is great, also. We'll get you some tea. The first day was not too frantic, although there are a few things today. I have to give a talk tonight and stuff oh, like you that. Do? But at least uh, some kind of yeah. <laughs> ease, a few hours free in between. <laughs> I know. You know, I have to say to you, just between us, um, I think as much as we, a lot of the conversation the last yesterday was about um, needing to reform education. Do what? Reforming education. Yes. And I also think we need to find new something to replace the panel discussion. <laughs> Which just I mean, I think the people, it's honest as people find that those, uh, some of them were dragging endlessly. The difference with mine and life is that they prepare crazy, you know. They, right. There's a pre-meeting, 
Yeah. For two days, yeah. everyone has to rehearse the presentation, and people who are used to say, no, that's right. no go. And then, uh, then there's a pre-meeting the day before, yeah. and those are on the one topic. Right. With the best people in the world. I mean, of course, those people were fantastic, but they just improvised. Well, also, what can you do when everyone gets five minutes and then it's over? There's no interaction. Well, sometimes, you know, you, like in Davos, they give you four minutes, but you really have to get the essence. But it's kind of right. strange. But right. but I thought, uh, I thought the one on creativity, I was, I was, you were there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I try all my best to, evo- to avoid being the moderator. You did a good job. I asked Ken Robinson to do it because it's so funny. Yeah. But they all were very happy. Yeah. I don't know about his holiness, but there was some kind of, uh, there was some incredibly good lines. I that mean, was good. That was probably the best one. The but exchange between Eckhart Tolle and Ken Robinson about yeah. penalty shootout. That's a classic. <laughs> I was telling them about that. Um, but oh, I've had Eckhart on the show also. But um, I think for the, for the public, you know, it just... Panel discussion after panel discussion yeah. after panel discussion. I mean, to have his own as we were teaching. No, even in Frankfurt, there was half-half. Yeah. And people say, no, we were just like more teaching from his own as just yeah. doing. He needs, exactly. And uh, he was not very engaged. I mean, a little bit more in the morning. Yeah. But in the afternoon, it was just like. Well, how can he be? I just. I, I thought I, I was sitting there in the afternoon. I, I was like. I know. All the time. You know? Yeah. Like, what is Ones doing there? Basically? I mean, there's those fantastic people. Yeah. But it's I diffe- know. It's a it's different story. Yeah. No, they had. And even their quality were probably not. So, anyway, I think the Islamist is an entourage thought that, that for my three yeah. days is too long. And yeah. Okay. I'm going to wear these. You don't have to wear them. Um, and. As I say, we edit it later, so we get to have a real conversation. So I can you stop can, and drink something. You can d- stop and drink. Um, it doesn't have to be completely linear. Mm. Um, i got a funny sound in my headphones today. So There's some, there's some kind of air, air conditioning. conditioning. You can yeah. stop it off or not? Yeah, we c- I've had trouble turning the air conditioning off in my own room. I'm not sure how to do it. There's not an on-off switch. They're just up and down arrows. Really? Well, if you put it way down, uh, way up, is it yeah, stop. Okay. All right. Um, so, um, you know, I interview people who do many different things and come from many different traditions and professions, and I always ask um, as a starting question, if you tell me a little bit about the spiritual background of your life, which is, yes, which is a different, which in, if you ask someone that in the United States, even if they're not religious, you always get a really interesting story. But I really? think, yeah, yeah, really interesting. But I think in France, it's a different. Uh, I think it would kind be not an interesting story. Yeah. I mean, well, I know your father was a philosopher, but was even was there any kind of secular spirituality? Um, well, not. I don't know. Spirituality for me, if you look at the roots, means the, something to do with the mind, yeah. <laughs> dealings precisely with the mind and uh, the way you experience the world. Well, you know, I was just like uh, any of those boys in France. Yeah. I had, of course, passions and interests. I would say mostly about nature. I was passionate of beauty of nature, even before being a photographer. And... Um, so because of that, because of the love of nature, I became a bird watcher, I, I sailed, I went to, the, to high mountains, and then I started photographing as well. So it was something important. 
but I was raised uh, completely in sort of agnostic uh, uh, sort of background. I mean, both my mother and my father were raised in in, in religious schools. They were uh, Catholic, like, uh, Jesuits and right. sister, but they all sort of went <laughs> gave up that as soon as they became adults. Yeah. So I was raised in the in the public school, and with a slightly slightly anti-religious feeling, you know, this kind of leftist thing in France, you know, like prévert and all that sort of literally making fun of the yeah. uh, of the of the church and the establishment and but when i was 15 16 then uh, to my mother who was has been interested in in spirituality not so much what she was raised in but in general i started reading a lot and also i have an uncle who was a great explorer who is still alive right. what was he a solo yachtsman or something what was uh, Yann Le Toumelin is my mother, and Jacques-Yves Le Toumelin is a. He was the last of the great, uh, you know, uh, solo navigator right. on sail without any engine. So he went round the world after the Second World War on a 10 meters long uh, yacht. Mm -hmm. And he was one of the four or five classics of those who circumambulated of the globe, you know, taking their time. And beautiful uh, adventures. So he, while he was doing the circumambulation, he was also reading books about Hinduism, Sufism, uh -huh. and he became a kind of, uh, you know, I won't say mystic, but certainly it was something that we would discuss a lot hmm. when I was going for holidays in in his home, and there was a circle of people. So I started reading about all those great traditions, uh -huh. and even including Christian mystics like the Father of the Desert, you know the the early Orthodox writings and Master Eckhart and yeah. and uh, Christian mystics and also you know everything you can think of mm -hmm. and it um, it's something that really mattered to me. At the same time, there was no living tradition. Uh, there was no connection except to reading and discussion, which was, of course, it's an important step. Right, but it was very quite cerebral. It's very, very cerebral. Mm -hmm. uh, although there was some aspirations mm -hmm. and some kind of you know respect but i didn't know how to formalize that then i think the but that was still you know a quite a sort of politically very leftist type. yes well and also i mean really <laughs> when i read about your parents and the world you grew yes. up in it's a, quite a charmed childhood i mean you were surrounded by brilliant people and yeah. artists great well, that uh, recognition of the difference came a little bit later Mm -hmm. So after I precisely I had met a great spiritual teacher. So the turning point, um, the factual turning point, when I was 20, uh, I then saw the rushes of a series of documentaries made by someone called Arnaud Desjardins, who then became a kind of a spiritual teacher on his own right, but who had a film with one of the Dalai Lama's interpreter for months and months, all the great masters over 2,000 kilometers of the Himalayas outside Tibet, the great Tibetan master who had fled the Chinese invasion from mm -hmm. Bhutan to Sikkim to India to Dharamsala. And uh, that was totally, you know, amazing. And especially the, those uh, kind of historical documents, which are still available, they're called the Message of the Tibetans and so forth. They are in, in English version as well. And at the end of the one of the was four one-hour documentaries, there was a series of faces of contemplatives, some great masters, some simple hermits, 
just in sort of meditation, looking straight at the camera. Probably they were not looking at the camera, but they were meditating and they, someone filmed them yeah. in silence. And that sort of building up of the strength of that, those faces, the strength of their presence, the strength of the silence. And what was also very remarkable is that they're all very different physically. Some very ascetic and skinny ones, some you know, more round faces, some young, some older. But there was a common quality that's hard to describe, but it's something to do with inner strength, compassion, sort of unwavering quality of awareness, and uh, well, all those things which constitute a true spiritual teacher. Right. And it's sort of like you hear about San Francisco of Assisi, you hear about Socrates, you hear about Master Eckhart, and you, say how, you wonder how they look like. <laughs> And there, there was those alive now. Right. So I, you know, I must go there. And then, fortunately, that person who did the film, plus another friend of mine, had gone there and they could give me addresses. So I thought, well, I must go. So I happened to have six months uh, after I was just about to enter. How old were you then? I was 20 and a half. Mm -hmm. So I just finished a part of my university. I was about to enter, start my PhD at Pasteur Institute. Mm -hmm. So I had six month break because there was a semestrial thing instead of the whole year program. So I said, well, I, 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 let's go there. Yeah. So I took a small dictionary because I had learned Greek, Latin, and German, which speak, never used in, <laughs> after that. And I spoke only very few words of English. So there I was, you know, going on the train in India and finding Darjeeling and meeting those great masters. You know, I was really intrigued. Um, let's say this. I had a very different experience, but your story reminded me of this. When I was in my 20s, I was working in divided Berlin, and I ended up working in these very elevated circles of political strategy and military strategy. And I, I was quite idealistic. I wanted to save the world, and I thought this was one of the ways to do it. But I was, my spiritual journey started when I kind of recoiled at the contrast between the importance of the issues and the the uh, intellectual and strategic substance of these people, the contrast between that and the very small inner lives a lot of them had. And I, I read a kind of similar observation that you wrote, because you were surrounded by, I mean, you met Stravinsky and Brunel, and, but you said, um, you can be a genius in your field and yet remain a dreadful person in daily life. Well, yes, I don't want only to accent the dreadful person. What I mean is that there is no obvious connection. Right. But so, I mean, what's so fascinating to me is you were, what you were attracted to was this embodiment, these yes. lives of integrity. And it was right. more, and it was really experiential rather than intellectual yes. at that point. Because it struck me, you know, when you sort of, retrospectively almost, I, I sort of thinking, well, you know, all these wonderful people, great scientists, uh, musicians, uh, philosophers, painters, ordinary folks. You know, you find a, a good distribution of everything. Right. Wonderful, warm-hearted people. Yeah. You know, you feel so good to be with them. And then, you know, people who are grumpy and not very altruistic and so forth. So it's not about scientists, not about musicians. It's just like there is everything in everything. So therefore, the, it didn't seem that the fact to become a scientist or to become a philosopher will make you necessarily a good human being. Right. Now, a spiritual teacher, if you say, oh, he's a great spiritual teacher, but wow, 
besides that, it's so grumpy, doesn't work. <laughs> you yeah. can't. Yeah. This is what not you're looking for, for saying it's an authentic spiritual teacher. So there has to be a perfect adequation. And also, it has to be not a facade. There are so many, uh, you know, unfortunately, of those who look very impressive. And then if you scratch a little bit the surface, or if you wait long enough, yeah. you will see that there are sides of them that's not fit with what they're supposed to be. So mm -hmm. the messenger has to be the message and it has to be integrally the message. Mm -hmm. And what is most remarkable, uh, having lived then for almost 40 years with great spiritual masters, is that, for instance, my second great teacher, Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, first I had a great master called Kangyo Rinpoche. I spent seven years on and off with him and the last three years of his life I had left Pasteur Institute I was living there. Okay. Then I spent 15 years with a second great teacher, Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche, who was one of the teachers to the Dalai Lama. And I was there at night with him because I became close disciple and attendant. Uh, one of the two monks who would, I would sleep in his room at night, helping to get, to get up if he needed so. When he would wake up to do his meditation at four in the morning, I would wake up and you know, serve him hot water or whatever. Okay. So, all the time, when he was giving teaching, when he was traveling, when he was meeting kings, when he was meeting farmers. And over 15 years, to see that absolute uh, coherence and consistency in every aspect of that person's life, like the Dalai Lama, you know, see him in public, in private, in any circumstances. Mm -hmm. He's just such an extraordinary good human being. Right. And you don't, there's no hidden side of it. There's no, the, as he says, you know, about journalists, he says, you should have long nose. Yes, I look heard in, him say look that. in front, look in the back. What yeah. he means is back is what they do when they are not <laughs> under the glare of not public just eye. What say, yeah. And that's what's amazing is mm -hmm. the quality that's, that's their quality as human beings. So that is that which is most inspiring. Right. Because you say, that's what I could become. That is what, here is someone who did it. Right. So therefore, it's possible. <laughs> and you, there's a book that was published, which was uh, in the form of a dialogue between you and your father, the monk and the philosopher, it was called. And it's really clear um, <clears throat> it, that he was very proud of you. He was very proud of what you were accomplishing. Well, not you, in the beginning. In the, well, nobody, <laughs> when you were um, heading towards your career in science as a cell biologist yeah. and you were, you did your dissertation, you presented your dissertation to Nobel winners and you were working at the Pasteur Institute. Um, and then, you know, he writes, um, you abandoned your career in order to commit yourself completely to Buddhist practice. And I, I can't, I didn't, um, I don't have this quote, but it's, you know, he, he says, it, it seems to me that he felt where you could have pursued this career in science and you could have discovered new, you could have made discoveries that about things that were new. And instead, you went back to something that was that had been around for thousands of years. Yeah, I thought that was a waste, I mean, of waste of potential. Yeah. And uh, he was very affected, which I learned later on. You know, one of his best friends who was uh, with me at his, uh, my father's deathbed hmm. for several days, he told me, you know, that he came to see him and he cried. And my father is not the kind of person who looks to cry very often. But... What I really, really am grateful is that he didn't show that. Mm -hmm. He was a stoned silence when I told him that. That you were going to become He was obviously extremely upset. Mm -hmm. But he didn't make a tantrum. 
while he was someone quite lively, who often would make tantrum, especially in, in polemical dialogues, right. political dialogues, he was known for being very strong temper. Mm -hmm. And later, when the book uh, came out and a lot of interviews took place and people asked him, How he said, How many well, years was that later, after you had devoted yourself to Tibetan Buddhism and become a Well, monk. I left, uh, I went first in 67 and I left for good in 1972. Right. So our meeting was in 1997 19, or 96 and then the book came out a few so months later. several decades. Yeah, it mm -hmm. was a long time. And he, he came once or twice to see what I was doing and not getting completely crazy. And he, I think he was comforted at that time to see that I was very happy with mm -hmm. doing that and I slowly started doing things like working for the preservation of the Tibetan cultural heritage, publishing manuscripts and books and uh, flourishing in what I was doing. I became the interpret French interpreter for the Dalai Lama. So at least in my own way, I was flourishing. But what he said once in an interview, which I was happy to hear, he said, well, Matthew was 26. You know, he's a, he's a man. So what I am to try to change his life? And then later he said, I saw him doing things that was he was passionate about and flourishing in it. So if you think of so many parents who are desperate hmm. because they wish good to their children and they see them you know, finding no point in life and drifting away and there's such a sorrow for them. So even if it's not your cup of tea to see someone who is flourishing and happy to do so, I think he, he was wise enough and kind enough not to make a huge tantrum because I hate those kind of things. and <laughs> I don't think I would have... Uh, <clears throat> complied with that, but right. I would have been very upset. Mm -hmm. And so there was no slamming of doors when I left, both my boss, Francois Jacob, Nobel Prize, and he, he didn't understand either. Yeah. But, uh, you know, when I saw him 25 years later, he kept on looking at me and said, oh, you look good, <laughs> you look good. <laughs> so, <laughs> not too bad. Um, and I think it seems to me that that, that book was a reflection also of a a conversation where, because your father didn't see what you saw, right? I mean, where he saw religion, you saw contemplative science. Yes. So talk about, talk about that. I think he got the idea, even before our discussion, but even more throughout discussion, that Buddhism, at some transcendent aspect, which he said he still was not connecting with at all, but he also really perceived Buddhism as a wisdom, an art of living, a science of mind, which was like the philosopher that he admired most, like the Socratic and pre-Socratic philosophers, who not only asked them, he said three questions. Uh, what, how, what can I know? How should I live and how to govern the city? So he said, mm. now what is, what can I know, mostly science as is providing most of the knowledge. How should I govern the city or the state? It's a democracy for what it is, uh, you know, it's the best model, even it has to be learned and refined. But how should I live my life? He said, you know, since uh, in his mind, since Spinoza, all the philosopher from Descartes onward had abandoned that project to make vast theoretical construction that helps nobody on, in their life, basically. That mm -hmm. was his opinion. So he really felt that the wisdom of Buddhist sages, uh, like my teacher whom he met, he came to Darjeeling, he came mm -hmm. to Bhutan to meet both my main teachers. And not that he had a profound exchange with them, but he was in their presence at least to see some kind of, I guess, some kind of feeling that they were more like, uh, you know, 
say Socrates than uh, some strange, uh, you know, <laughs> he, yeah. mystics uh, that he could not relate to. But I think I think what intrigues me is the line that was there for you because I think for you it was less of a departure from your. Um, you know, your curiosity, your passion for discovery as a scientist. It was less of a departure than, than he even realized. I mean, here's, you know, here's something you wrote in another book, which was a di- form of a dialogue, The Quantum and the Lotus, which I really loved. Um, you know, is there a solid reality behind appearances? What is the origin of the world of phenomena, the world that we see as real all around us? What is the relationship between the animate and the inanimate, between the subject and the, ob- the object? Do time, space, and the laws of nature really exist? Buddhist philosophers have been studying these questions for the last 2,500 years. Yeah, I mean, for me, this idea, oh, how can you go from Pasteur Institute to the Himalayas? What a break. <laughs> right. There's no break. I mean, of course, you change rooms. You change clothes, you move from one place to another, but there's a continuity in what you do unless you are forced by a tragic, dramatic event or you become mad. So in my case, you know, over six years at Pasteur Institute, I went back and forth a number of times. And that built up the appreciation of the difference. You know, in the beginning, the first time I went to Darjeeling, met also the great spiritual teacher, Kanjuri Moshe, it was too much almost to fully uh, appreciate the impact it had on, on my mind. When I left Darjeeling itself, it was so powerful, but at the same time, I didn't know whether I would, I was not sure what will, will come back, what will happen. It's when I arrived back in France that the contrast was so big that I said, of course I'll go back. And uh, the next year for my, during my holiday, the first thing I did was to, to go back. So I went back and forth. And as I went back and forth, I realized that when I, were in, when I was in, at Pasteur Institute, you know, my mind was constantly you know, flying to Darjeeling. Right. <laughs> Near my teacher, remembering him all the time. And when I was in Darjeeling, the Pasteur Institute looks very, very far. So nothing wrong with that. And I thought, well, now it's a time. Where it's, it's, it's ready uh, for me. Like, you know, when the fruit is mature, you, you don't have to pull and break the branch and everything. It's just a small twist and the, the apple falls in your hand. So it was just the right time. I, di- I was very happy to be at Pasteur Institute. I think that scientific training helped me a lot to have at least a, some kind of rigorous mind. But then that was it. That was it. You know, to stay another few years, then I would have felt sort of like a, an animal caught in a trap. That was right. no more what I aspired to. And then fortunately... I didn't have to wait till I was retired at 62 or something to, <laughs> to start that. Right. So, you know, Einstein um, felt that Buddhism was perhaps the religion of the future that could reconcile the best insights of science and spirituality. And um, You know, it's amazing. That quote of Einstein, yeah. it's, a, it's typically Einstein's style. Yeah. But I could, we would never, never trace it to a precise speech or something. But... Everyone agrees that it sounds very much like Einstein's mm-hmm. writing or speech. Yeah, I don't know where I... I mean, I've heard it. I, I haven't heard it so much as a quote, as an idea. I mean, I, and it's more where his mind no, was going. It's a beautiful quote. Yes. And you really say that it's the one that fits with the that it can cosmology reconcile vision, that can reconcile or everything. Or hold them together mm-hmm. in a creative tension. And then it really intrigues me because I think that this Mind and Life initiative of the Dalai Lama that you're also part of is a 21st century manifestation of that. Yes. That idea. So that yes, you see, Dalai Lama himself 
was always been so interested in science. He said, yeah. possibly he had not been dilemma, I would have been an engineer. He says when he sees tools, he has a hard time keeping his hand off. <laughs> He's teasing. <laughs> but uh, from an early age, you know, he made an observation that is very remarkable. For instance, you know, he, he was looking to a, teles a, a telescope at the moon, and he called his teacher and said, look, there are shadows on the moon. It means that the moon doesn't have its own light, as it says in the Buddhist scripture, but that it's lit by something mm. else, and there are shadows. That's the same idea that led you know, to the discovery by early astronomers, I forgot which one, Copernic or, or Galileo, to, to say that uh, you know, the moon is uh, lit by the reflection of the sun. He mm. had this intuition. So he was very curious mind, very incisive, in, inquisitive mind. And so when he came in exile, one of his uh, wishes was to meet with great scientists. He met with uh, you know, Karl Popper, with uh, um, great uh, quantum physicists, and, and yeah. then more and more with psychologists and neuroscientists. So when they saw that, some of them got the idea of creating that just uh, Mind and Life Institute. You know, Francisco Varela, a great neuroscientist, Adam Engel, mm -hmm. who is a former businessman, now the chairman of Mind and Life, to facilitate this dialogue. First of all, it was just to, to bring them together and have this wonderful small-scale dialogue, five or six scientists, maybe 20 observers, and that was it. But then it quickly turned out that the discussion was so lively, so uh, enriching from both sides. They were not just coaching the Dalai Lama, they were also learning a lot from his kind of mind. Right. And that uh, it became a little bit bigger. Some public events uh, start to happen, like the first one in, at MIT in, was investigating the mind. When John Kabat-Zinn was involved was in that. It was in 2003. It was a quite a groundbreaking. There was a thousand scientists yes. there and yes. Nobel Prizes and so forth. But also the idea of starting a research program. That because Buddhist, Buddhism considers itself as an empirical approach of mm -hmm. the functioning of the mind, the mechanism of happiness and suffering, and so pragmatic empirical means uh, you know we can certainly work with scientists without any risk of you know feeling threatened by that because if something is false it's false right. what's the problem with that right <laughs> so in 2000 following one of the meeting uh, that was devoted to destructive emotions the first one to myself I participated in Dharamsala for 5 days and halfway through the week his holiness sort of one morning is his typical you know, common sense approach said, well, all this is very nice, but what can we contribute to society? Okay. <laughs> so there was a brainstorming. There were some of the great minds there, Paul Ekman, who was specialist on emotions, Richard Davidson, one of the leading neuroscientists, Francisco Varela, the founder of Mind and Life. And then the idea, well, let's do a serious uh, research program, not one of those sort of fringe thing, but with the top neuroscientists and meditators who have done a solid 10,000 to 60,000 hours of meditation. And right. let's see what's going on. So, I mean, and, and this is an example also of where, just tell, correct me if I'm not getting this right, but there's this notion of neuroplasticity that has emerged from this. And this is an example of where, as you say, um, this is not just about the Dalai Lama consulting scientists to learn what he can learn, but he uh, and his fellow uh, Buddhist monks suggested that not only uh, do thoughts um, arise from the brain, but that, in fact, 
the mind might affect the matter that we call the brain. Well, you know, Say, the, it... how can you have a successful constructive research program mm -hmm. in the present condition of uh, science? If you are going to go on the domains that are too foreign to the current thinking in neuroscience, uh, trying to s investigate whether there could be a consciousness outside the brain, right. <laughs> very hot topic, you would uh, immediately exclude possibly 90% of, 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 of well-known and solid neuroscientists because they say that's all crap. Right. So now, but on the other hand, if you say, well, let's study what mind training does, whether no matter look at the what brain. is the ultimate nature of consciousness, there mm -hmm. are obviously correlations in any case. Whatever is the situation, ultimate situation is, whenever you, the, the mind or whatever thinks about something, meditate upon something, some change occur in the brain. So how does that work? Mm -hmm. And that on that, everybody agrees. You know, there's no problem. We are not, of course, in private discussion during those meetings, we discuss a lot about the ultimate nature of consciousness. Myself, I'm engaged now since three years with such a dialogue with Wolf Singer, who is one of the world's neuroscientists, is the head of the Max Planck Institute for Neuroscience. Uh, he's the one who found the gamma waves in the brain. Right. And uh, we have a very in-depth discussion on the ultimate nature of consciousness. He didn't shrink away from that. Right. But the research to engage everyone and not to scare anyway or to repulse uh, you know, great neuroscientists who would make a major contribution to that research. Let's keep on something that we all agree. Let's study the effect of mind training on the brain okay. and on physiology. And you were one of those uh, meditators, one of the words you referred to as Olympic meditators. As you said, people who've meditated more than 10,000 hours or something. Yeah, like I think that. I would calculate roughly at 40,000, but probably most of them like completely distracted. I don't know, but in numbers right. I did. <laughs> but the point, yes, because I was at that first meeting and I was from both worlds, yeah. I volunteered because I, I thought it was fun and I was very interested and curious. So and I was this is with Richard Davidson. Richard Davidson. It, so yes. I was the first guinea pig, let's say. And also, you know, when you go, we are about to start those things. So you have to say, what do you do? You know, do you have to meditate for an hour before you start, uh, you know, getting into some kind of meditation state? Mm -hmm. And we said, no, I think reasonably, you know, in 30 seconds, we can really get to whatever I can do. I can get to a reasonable level in 30 seconds. So it is conceivable, which is very good for the scientific study, to have a one-minute rest, three minutes of intense meditation, and do that alternance 50 times, which is exactly the kind of data they need to see comparisons. Okay. So in that sense, even sometimes within already being in the scanner, we say, look, uh, that doesn't look quite good in timing. Can we reduce or increase that? So it was really a collaboration and also giving ideas. Mm -hmm. You know, why don't we study that type of meditation or this type of meditation? And so it was, a, it has continuously been a, a very a wonderful collaboration of ideas uh, to build up that research program together. And then, once a protocol is in place to study either compassion meditation or focused attention meditation or what we call open presence meditation, then we can bring more experienced meditators to 
uh, because we need many. Just one case is not interesting enough. And we can compare them with age match uh, controls. We yeah. are just novice. So that becomes robust science. So I was helpful first to help them devise the protocol and then invite and convince great meditators, much greater than me, to come there. I've and then the this program <clears throat> has taken strength and now many labs, there's at least five or six major laboratories right. in the uh, United States and in Europe who are now doing very in-depth research, not only in long-term meditators, but also which is more probably you know, uh, relevant to mm, our world practical. with short-term meditation, like eight weeks, 20 minutes a day. What does change does that bring? And that also gives remarkable results. Right. I've seen pictures of you um, hooked up to the, all the electrodes. It looks like some kind of alien headdress. <laughs> um, so, okay, help me understand um, what's been learned, in, in, at least part of what's been learned, what, what surprised the scientists. Um, as you say... It's no surprise that there's a physical correlate when, you know, that, that you're meditating and that in that moment they might see something happening in your brain. But I think that uh, one of the learnings that challenged some thinking was that these changes were permanent, right? Yes. That even when you weren't meditating, the gamma, was it the gamma waves were present and were different. Mm -hmm. And so... I mean, like, you know, I saw a newspaper headline which was describing these experiments and it said how thinking can change the brain. But really that's, um, that's not quite right. I mean, what you're talking yeah, about. that's right. It's right, but you're also talking. No, I mean, training can change the you brain. A, for you. A, not just uh, thinking, training. A, I mean, right, or that, that there's something, that there's such a thing as the mind or consciousness, right, which is. Well, you see, first of all, uh, I think it was very much needed to show that long-term or even short-term mind training, you spoke of neuroplasticity. What mm -hmm. does that mean? Plasticity means the brain can change functionally and possibly structurally following a training. Actually, this is uh, one of the major uh, discovery in neuroscience for the last 20 years, um, not only at all with meditation, mm -hmm. 20 years ago, it was thought that the adult brain can't change anymore right. because it will make a huge mess. It's so complex that you cannot uh, you know, fiddle around with that. Then they found that birds that learn new songs, the brain change, uh, musicians that play 10,000 hours of violin, the area of the brain that has to do with the coordination of the finger is vastly increased, that the London cab drivers who have to learn 20,000 street by heart, the area that has to do with the topology <laughs> is vastly increased. So what about compassion? What about focused attention? Basically, it's just another skill. Of course, it's a skill that matters more in your life. You know, compassion obviously matters more uh, than learning 20,000 streets, except for taxi driver, probably they need both. <laughs> right, right. But those are such basic human qualities that if you can cultivate them, you can imagine how crucial it is. And so to establish that meditation is not just like a, a, a nice relaxation where you empty your mind, those cliches that are still attached to the notion of meditation, mm -hmm. that's why we prefer the, maybe the idea of mind training. Although it's not just mind training like bodybuilding, but also could be training in rest, in pure awareness. That's, you know, not, we are not used to do that. And to rest in the perfect uh, you know, transparency and uh, the freshness of the present moment 
is not a strenuous exercise, but it's something that requires experience. So all those at what we broadly call meditation or mind training, and to see that they had a permanent effect means what? Means the different ways that the brain functionally, in a stable way, function differently than before. The result of, of training, the result of skill. That's, that's how the brain functions to acquire novelty, to process novelty in any type of training, whether it's play tennis or learning chess or whatever. So here it's about human qualities. Now, the question about the ultimate nature of consciousness, of course, that's not what we are looking for right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no way I think science right now could address that question except on the philosophical level, but they do address it in the philosophical level because they make a choice in a way to say, well, we don't know fully what's going on in the brain, but as we're progressing, it is very likely or almost certain that in 50 years when we know everything, then we will have absolutely full explanation of consciousness and we won't need to speak of anything else. But that's a philosophical choice because there's no such uh, proof right now. And there are quite few indications that could be otherwise. We just have to keep very open mind. So if you want, we can go in the detail about the the reasoning, uh, Buddhist reasoning about why well, well, nature that, of consciousness could be something that's else? That's what I'd like. I'd like to know how how you think about it, and, okay. and it's clear that there's one way that that science can define it at this point. Okay. How do you explain what so they found? Let's see. Yeah. Uh, you have what we call primary phenomena. You know, look at matter. Now you go down to matters. You go down and down in the most refined, uh, subtle aspect of matter. So what do you come to? You, depending upon what theory you follow, you might come to quarks, you might come to superstring, and if you go even at the more fundamental level, you might come to the quantum vacuum, the fluctuation of the fluctuation of which gave rise to what was called the Big Bang, and <laughs> whatever. Right. But you come to some kind of potential. Maybe the quantum vacuum is the most indifferentiated you can imagine. But then what? Whether you come to quarks, superstring, or quantum vacuum, why do you go from there? You cannot go deeper so far. So you just have to acknowledge you know, the famous question of Leibniz, why there is nothing, why there is something rather than nothing. Well, you say, well, there is something, whatever it is. So it's a primary phenomena. Unless you bring God or something else that has nothing to do with what you observe, you have no way to say why there is something rather than nothing. It's just uh, you, you just have to acknowledge that the phenomenal world is there. And you study the mechanism, how from that quantum vacuum, uh, you know, t- t- phenomena unfolded and then aggregated and the universe were formed. And then you can make a lot of theories about that and, pr- and uh, test them. But the very fact that phenomenal world exists is a primary phenomena. Mm-hmm. Now, consciousness, you can study it in different ways. What we basically call the third-person approach means looking from the outside, and the first-person approach looking into your experience. So third-person approach is very clear, as what neuroscience does better and better, is whenever people think of emotions or just uh, are alive, something happened in their brain. And you can describe that in increasingly sophisticated details. 
And when someone sees red or someone feels love, you could describe right down to the most uh, single neurons what's going on if you had the power of investigation. But in a way, even you could describe that perfectly, completely, every single neuron's relation with others, you have no clue what it means to f see red, feel love as an experience. So that's the first person. Now, consciousness, the very word would not exist if there wasn't a first person experience. You would just say, okay, something happening in the brain. We don't know. That's it. Function. I mean, a great neuroscientist told me there's no brain, there's no mind, there's just brain function. Okay, fine, <laughs> okay. brain functions. But we have experience. Nobody can deny that. And actually, that experience is primary to anything. There was no science without experience. There was, we could not conceive of the brain without experience. Without experience, forget about the world. <laughs> Who will dare to know what is the world? Yeah. So experience, now, if you study experience, you have to be sort of follow a consistent line. You know, it's like you cannot just jump from quantum physics to classical mechanics from one second to the other to try to explain things. You have to follow, either you explain things with quantum mechanics as much as you can or you follow classic, but you cannot say, okay, now things, it seems that atoms are not things, they are events, as Eisenberg said, but let's go back to, to classical mechanics because there must be something real. So you have to be follow a particular line right. rigorously. So now, consciousness, experience, what do you do when you follow it rigorously through introspection? That's what experience is about. Mm -hmm. So where, the same way that you go down to matter, to, to the quarks, or to particles, or to superstrings, what will you come to if you go deeper and deeper, more fundamental aspect of consciousness? What do we mean by that? Behind the screen of thoughts, this whirlpool of all kinds of emotion, reasoning, discursive thoughts, memories, imagination, feelings, and so forth. There is something very fundamental that's the basic cognitive quality of mind. You can call that basic awareness. You, awareness, you can call it a fundamental aspect of consciousness. The most basic quality that you know rather than you don't know. Just like in matter, <laughs> there's something rather than nothing. Right. In, in, Buddhist, in Buddhism, we call it the luminous aspect of mind. Not that it shines lights in the dark, but luminous because that's what illuminates your world. The outer world, your inner world of thoughts. It's like a torchlight, a light that allows mm. you to see things. Mm. But light is the fundamental thing that doesn't change. Uh, it's not changed by what it illuminates. If light shines on a heap of garbage, it doesn't become dirty, it just reveals it. Right. If lines... Light shines upon a diamond. It's not become expensive. It just reveals the diamond. So there's a fundamental component that's basic consciousness. Now, when you reach that through experience, then pure awareness, awareness being aware of itself, that's it. You cannot go further than that. If you remain in that fresh awareness of the present moment, no, you don't come to your brain, you don't feel your brain. It's one of the only organs that doesn't feel anything, except if you bang your head. <laughs> right. You don't come to neuron. Doesn't mean neuron don't exist, but in, you don't see neuron in your experience. You come to what? To pure awareness. So in a way, if you're honest in your line of investigation, keeping into the phenomenological experience, what you come is to pure awareness. 
Now the third person experience comes to explaining how the neuron works. This is <laughs> okay, a different right. line of experience. Right. So now you can say that from that perspective, experience being primal to everything in, in life, there will be nothing else if we don't have experience, that this is also a primary phenomena. And if you look at the succession of instant of that phenomena, one moment of consciousness, the immediately preceding instant is conscious. You don't have suddenly a grain of sand that becomes conscious or something unconscious that becomes conscious. Right. So the Buddhist reasoning is that there must be a continuum because the law of cause and effect is such that you don't go from anything to anything. You go to something that has a similar nature and there's a kind of change that can occur in the content, but the moment of consciousness that triggered the one I have now is conscious. The next one will be so. So hence the idea of a continuum. So that's the Buddhist reasoning. It corresponds to experience. And that's just an open possibility for investigation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and these thousands of years of, um, of, tra- of Buddhist teaching and tradition and cultivating this discipline of meditation, and that is, that is a rigorous investigation of this. Well, I mean, anyone who spent enough time to see precisely what's behind the bustle of thoughts and mm. can remain that pure awareness and uh, this is not something that we can say no it's just, just there yeah. and it's not something a fib of imagination no, pure consciousness pure awareness that's, 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 that's not something that you can contest right. so I think that this analogy of um, with physics and, and also your dialogue with physics is really interesting to me and um, so so if I may add something, yeah, yeah, you know this is uh, this approach has been something sometimes labeled as duali- Cartesian dualistic approach, you know? right? Matter and immaterial mind. This is very different in Buddhism for several reasons. One of main one is that uh, a dualistic approach is usually between truly existing solid material phenomena and totally inexisting sort of ungraspable sort of consciousness which cannot interface. Right. So they try to all kinds of idea of interface, this is old doesn't work. Buddhism has a very different take on reality. It says reality is not solid as it seems. It's more like you know, philosophically right. you know, when Eisenberg said atoms are not things, they are events, well the Sanskrit word samskara that designate all the compounded phenomena is also event. They are events, interrelated events. Right. So the one of the main approach of Buddhism about reality is that it's something that appears but is devoid of solid intrinsic autonomous existence. It's not a nihilistic view by any means. Phenomena are there, but the ultimate nature is not as solidly existing as it seems. So it's more that within this set of phenomena that appear, that manifest, yet are devoid of intrinsic existence, some are animate, some are inanimate, both are interrelated, Mm -hmm. but there's no, they are equally devoid of ultimate solid reality. So you don't have a fundamental dichotomy between solid reality and immaterial phenomena. All right, you don't have that in Buddhism and what, Physics in our, I mean, physics is in fact bearing out. This is this yeah, is in, the, in a sense, this yes. 
um, this way of looking at reality. So and what I mean to is the accusation of Buddhism, oh, it's just another dualistic idea is not correct. No. <laughs> no. And I'm, I mean, I, you have this book, um, The Quantum and the Lotus, which is a dialogue between you <clears throat> and an astrophysicist, Trin Huan Tuan. Um, and I wonder, you know, I'd love to know about what insights emerged for you in that conversation, like what you... And I know you, you are schooled in all of this. You read this anyway. But um, talk to me a little bit about what you've learned in that conversation and in others about how some of these very fascinating ways that the insights of modern physics are kind of in, um, are bearing out some of the things or giving a new way to think about some of the things that Buddhists have been saying and practicing for many millennia. Yeah, okay, yeah. 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 Say when. Yep. Okay. <sighs> Tell me. Huh? Yes. Okay. So it was another great encounter. I met uh, Trin Huan Tuan in uh, Andorra, one of in the Pyrenees. Okay. We were both invited <laughs> to some summer university. And immediately he said, you know, I'm born in Vietnam, born a Buddhist, I don't know. I always wanted to have a dialogue about Buddhism and, and astrophysics or modern science. So, you know, start a new dialogue again, but you know, it was too tempting. And we did that, it was wonderful. So what really uh, I learned, the most fascinating thing I learned through this dialogue was precisely about something very deep about the nature of reality related to interdependence mm -hmm. and impermanence. And interdependence, uh, of course, in, in, in modern physics is slightly different, is non-localization. Right. This idea of non-locality, that thing. That's far, you know, the fact that if, if one photon or particle split into two and they shoot out at basically any distance in the universe, they still remain part of a whole. Yeah. Uh, because if you measure one in a certain way, even the other one is so far that there's no way that the light can convey information, it will somehow resolve itself in the same way. Right. So there's something there that, that is still not separate. Right. Uh, so that was an incredible insight for me because interdependence is not just the fact that things are related, but also that therefore they are devoid of autonomous existence, totally autonomous, independent existence, that their properties cannot be fully intrinsic. So that was the idea of Einstein, and he even right. suggested an experiment that would prove that, but that was disproved 
by an aspect and others, when they could see uh, that so-called EPR effect and so forth, that there was this non-localization of intrinsic properties. So that matches perfectly with the idea of Buddhism of appearing phenomena devoid of localized, autonomous, intrinsic characteristics. That was great. Right, and, and translate that into what that means in a, in a human life. Intrinsic means, well... Uh, like what, are, what are the implications In, in physics, it means you know, like uh, spin or whatever. But for Buddhism, it means something that is uh, intrinsically anything, beautiful, ugly, uh, I don't know, red, blue, any characteristic comes through relation. Relation co-define an object. Hmm. Nothing exists on its own. Like take a rainbow in the sky. Well, it looks very beautiful. It's very, very vivid and clear. You'll think that that rainbow has at least something of something existing on its own. Yes, because it's uh, different from the sky. There must be a little bit of something. But frankly, you know, you, are, you have the sun coming from a, shining from a certain angle. You have a curtain of, of rain. Yeah. You have an observer at a certain place. Now you just, behind you, you mask the rays of sun. And there is not a speck of existence of that rainbow that remains. It's all gone. Because you remove something, an element of a of a, of a set of relations that crystallize that rainbow somewhere as a phenomena. But rainbow on its own, not even the slightest bit of existence. It only exists through interdependent phenomena. So the idea is, is the same for every single phenomena. Nothing exists on its own. So therefore, nothing is, is endowed. There's no en- a single entity in the whole universe that exists on its own. That's right. what we can say. And that has profound repercussions in Buddhism, not only as a philosophical idea, but also the way we grasp to the world. If you grasp to something, say, as being mine, therefore, mm. that mm. object exists on its own. It's some kind of permanent. I can label it mine, so therefore, it's really, really mine. What does that mean? Nothing. Right. No, this watch I have... Just the, how can they say it's mine? It's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> Nothing. And I mean, would you also say that um, another analogy would be just a human analogy would be this phenomenon of globalization? I mean, that we're all we're we're working to grasp this that we are interconnected. Um, yes. Yeah, so and precisely. we we somehow know that it's. I think people in the twenty first century understand that it's true. Well, and it leads to what the Dalai Lama calls the sense of universal responsibility. And now more and more leaders are speaking of interdependence, and Mm -hmm. I hear that word again and Mm -hmm. again, recently in Bill Clinton's mouth, about the world is interdependent. And it is true. We are interdependent even, I I would say, even more deeply than (laughs) what we mostly think. But that leads to also the sense of interdependency is at the root of altruism and compassion. Mm That's one of the consequences of understanding interdependence. You know, if you think of uh, separate entities, well, I'm a separate entity as well. So, what do I do? I create a small bubble, you know, self-centered bubble, and I take care of my own happiness because, after all, I'm this separate entity, so I just have to build my own happiness, and that's right. fine. Right. 
other people have to do the same. I'm very glad they do the same, but it's not my business. And everyone will become happy in their own bubble, and then the world will be fine. Well, if it would work, okay, but this is not working. Why? Not just because of moral issue, because it's bad to be self-centered, because it's dysfunctional, because it's at odds with reality. Right, right. So it doesn't work. Right, right. So a selfish happiness cannot work. Mm-hmm. Now, as much as selfishness, self-centeredness is based on a wrong perception of reality, what is compassion based off or altruistic love? The recognition that I don't want to suffer. I really want to be happy, even if I'm not... I should better investigate that and recognize it for what it is. And then I'm, if I transport myself in someone else's mind, even that person is mischievous or whatever, at the deepest, deepest level, nobody wakes up in the morning thinking, may I suffer the whole day and if possible my whole life. It's not true. Mm. So I recognize that. Here is a living being, so I would not want to suffer. And we are deeply interconnected. So... I hope to have some consideration for that. This is the most fundamental right, is not to suffer. Not only human rights, but living rights. So the more you take that in consideration and look at beings rather than behaviors, then it's not, it is the notion of benevolence, of wishing that people may be free from suffering and find fulfillment, is attuned with reality there. So. If you, the more you develop it, the more it's going to work. Actually, I, I think something we're we're speaking in in the context of this gathering in Vancouver, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama um, has been here all week, and many other um, spiritual thinkers, activists. Um, something that he said a few times um, is that change s- still happens, uh, um, still begins small, right? It's begin, it begins in locally. I mean, it's kind of a cliche, but he said, um, still the change happens first in individuals, then in families, then in communities, then the world. Yes. And I think a real world challenge um, is that sometimes, let's say I have children, right? And I live in this neighborhood, and this is very true of many American cities. I live in a very safe neighborhood which borders on a neighborhood where there's suddenly a lot of crime, right? Um, And there is this tension in human life. I mean, I think this is also the tension of tribes and nations of protecting what you love. um, And sometimes that seems to be in conflict with um, your capacity to reach out to places where there is more suffering. Why? Hmm? Why? Yeah. Well, there sometimes there are real practical challenges. I mean, I don't think they have to be obstacles, but it's a, see, it's a tension. There's a limitation to what you can do, even though we should not too much emphasize on that, because otherwise the great right. transformation of the world will not have been accomplished. You know, like in this peace summit, we had the example of the people from Brak in Bangladesh. There's someone who started there with 8,000 pounds, and now mm. he has built 35,000 schools. Right. So if he had thought that he could not make right. a difference, nothing would have happened. So first of all, we should not see small. Secondly, even in principle, there is absolutely no, nothing incompatible in taking special care of those who are close to you in, in life 
without that meaning that you have to narrow down the beams of your loving kindness. And I think the best example of that is the, if you take the sun. <laughs> sun shines everywhere. It, it doesn't cost more to the sun right. to shine on all than to shine just on a few persons. It's just natural. The sun shines all over the place. It shines on good people, on wicked people, on dictators as well as you know, Mahatma Gandhi as well. Now, the circumstances of life are such that there are people who are closer to you or to the sun of your loving kindness. So they get more warmth. That's natural. That's not exclusive. It just happened like that. Right. So if you see it that way, the fact that this, your capacities, the circumstances of life, the day-to-day exposure makes that you take special care of affection to those beings is in no way saying, okay, I'm only going to shine on those. It's right, not necessary. Right. And you can have the vastness of mind to have the same benevolence so that to all, so that if circumstances make so that some other beings comes in your f- field, then they will benefit from that. You don't need to exclude them. So that readiness and that idea of all-encompassing all uh, wish for benevolence is very important. And then it needs also some understanding about the true nature of loving kindness and compassion. Compassion and loving kindness is not a reward for people who behave well. The absence of compassion is not a punishment for those who behave badly. It has to do with removing suffering. It has to do with going at the deep at the cause of suffering. And among those causes of suffering, there is hatred, there is cruelty. That's what we wish for a dictator. We wish that that dictator may, that cruelty and hatred be cleansed from that person's mind. That's what loving kindness is about. It's not wishing good or liking this guy. It's okay, not too bad, you kill 10,000 people, but it doesn't matter. You know, here's a ticket, go and take rest in the Bahamas. Nothing to do with that. The individual still has a potential for change. We must prevent in any possible way for negative actions, but even totally messed up and mislead, misled that person is, still there's a potential for change. She's that person somehow could change and not stop to inflict suffering and suffer himself or herself. So loving kindness is just wishing that all the causes of happiness be gathered and all the causes of suffering be dispelled. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to limit that to anybody, whether close friends, strangers, or even obnoxious people. <laughs> We just have a few more minutes. I want to, I want to talk about happiness. You've been labeled the um, happiest man in the world coming out of these well, totally, Davidson experiments. <laughs> totally artificial. <laughs> I issued about a thousand disclaimers, but nobody cares. You did. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't get covered. Um, I think you know. I did identify with some of the things you wrote uh, that you've written. That um, when you were younger. You thought that happiness was not necessarily a very laudable goal. I mean, I... I, well, I didn't have was, no idea about it, basically. Right, but it, it didn't... It, you know, you're worldly wise and rational. And, mm. um, um, and so I think... And, and, and then you, we also live in this culture where the word happiness gets completely watered down. And, oh, yes. of course, in the United States, is a right. Um, so I want to just talk about... Um, you know, how, how you define happiness, because we have to put a lot of 
Yeah, I think that's very important because that's why also this word is so vague. Yeah, that you know you can use it. You no, know, buy this uh, toothpaste and you'll be happy. You know, okay, right. Good, right. good luck. Uh, so, I think if we we should clearly see what are the inner conditions that foster a genuine sense of flourishing of uh, mm. fulfillment that the quality of every instant of your life uh, has a certain quality that you appreciate fully. So you see, it's very different from people or sometimes imagine that a constant happiness will be a kind of euphoria mm-hmm. or endless succession of pleasant experiences. Right. Now, that's more like a recipe for exhaustion <laughs> than happiness. Right. And also, if you look at the parameters, this is very different. Pleasure depends very much on uh, circumstances, uh, what triggers it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it's a, it's, a, it's a sensation in a way. So sensation change yeah. from pleasurable to neutral and to unpleasurable. I mean, even the most pleasurable thing, you eat a, you know, something very delicious. Once it's delicious, two, three times, okay. And then 10 times you get yeah. nauseous. Yeah. Uh, you, are, you are very cold and shivering. You come near a bonfire, such a delight. But then after a few minutes, you start, okay, then you move back. It's too hot. So it's always like that. The most beautiful music you hear five times, 24 hours is is, is a nightmare. And also, it's something that uh, basically doesn't radiate to others. You can experience pleasure at the cost of others' suffering. Um, So it's very vulnerable to the change of outer circumstances. It doesn't help you to face the outer circumstances better. Now, if we think of happiness as a way of being, a way of being that gives you the resources to deal with the ups and downs of life, that pervades all the emotional state, including sadness. Right. So if we think of sadness, it's incompatible with pleasure, but it's compatible with what? With altruism, with inner strength, with inner freedom, with sense of direction and meaning in life. No, there are sad things, but if you don't fall in despair, still you maintain that... Uh, that wholeness and that sense of purpose and, so and this meaning. Happiness also, the way you describe it, is something that en- can encompass sadness and grief. Can what? Encompass. It can encompass these every things. mental state except those who are just opposite, which is like despair, hatred. Precisely the mental factors that will destroy inner peace, inner strength, inner right. freedom. If you are under the grip of hatred, you are not free. You are the slave of your own thoughts. Mm -hmm. So that's not freedom. Therefore, this is opposite to genuine flourishing and happiness. So we have to distinguish mental factors which contribute to that way of being, the cluster of qualities like altruistic love, inner freedom, and so forth, from those who undermine that, which is like jealousy, obsessive desire, hatred, arrogance. We call that mental toxins Mm. because they poison our happiness, and also makes us to relate to others in a poisonous way. So that's something that you can cultivate, Mm -hmm. unlike pleasure. You don't cultivate pleasure. But happiness, in that sense, is a skill. Because why? Because altruistic love can be developed. We have the potential for it, but it's really untapped. All these other qualities can be enhanced to a more optimal way. And therefore, those are skills. Right. You've also talked about this kind of happiness as a as a way of interpreting the world, um, you said a way of being. But it's so, and then you you quoted um, Tagore. I thought this was so 
such a wonderful illustration. We read the world wrong and say that it deceives us. Exactly, you know. It's how do we read the world? In the same situation, people experience it very many different ways. We know that. So the quality of our experience can easily eclipse the outer conditions. Not that the outer conditions don't matter. Don't mistake for that. I mean, it's infinitely desirable that we provide to others and to ourselves conditions for survival. There are so many people in this world that cannot feed their kids. It's unacceptable. So anything that can be done should be done. And it's a joke if we don't do it. I mean, if we are failing all principle of basic morality. But yet we should acknowledge at the same time that you can be miserable in a little paradise, you know, have everything so-called to be happy and totally depressed and a wreck within. Mm. And you can maintain this kind of joy of being alive and sense of compassion even in the worst possible scenario. Because that the mind, the way you translate that into happiness or misery, that's the mind who does that. And the mind is that which experience everything from morning till evening, that's your mind that translates the outer circumstances either into sense of happiness, strength of mind, inner freedom, or enslavement. So mm-hmm. your mind is can be your best friend, also your worst enemy, and it's a spoiled brat of the mind needs to be taken care of, <laughs> which we don't do. Right. We vastly underestimate the power of transformation of mind and its importance in determining the quality of every instant of our life. So I imagine that people ask you, uh, how do I become happy? What do you say? How do you respond to that? Well, clearly by first saying yes, outer circumstances are important. I should do whatever I can, but I should certainly see that at the root of all that, there are inner circumstances, inner conditions. What are they? Well, just look at you. Now, if I say, okay, come, we'll spend the weekend cultivating jealousy, now who is going to go for that? We all know that, even say, well, that's part of human nature, but we, we are not interested in cultivating more jealousy, neither for hatred, neither for arrogance. So those, we will be much better off if they were not, didn't have such a grip on our mind. Mm-hmm. So there are ways to counteract those, to dissolve those. I mean, you cannot, in the same moment of thought, wish to do something good to someone or harm that person. So those are mutually incompatible, like hot and cold water. So the more you will bring benevolence in your mind, at every of those moments, there is no space for hatred. That's just very simple, but we don't do that. No, we do exercise every morning, 20 minutes to be fit. We don't (laughs) sit for 20 minutes to cultivate compassion. If we were to do so, our mind will change, our brain will change, uh, what we are will change. So those are skills. They need mm-hmm. to be first identified, then cultivated. What is good to learn chess? Well, you have to practice and all that. In the same way, we all have thoughts of altruistic love. Right. Who, who didn't have that? But they come and go. We don't cultivate them. Right. And then why should... You know, how Do you learn the piano by playing 20 seconds every two weeks? This doesn't work. So why, by what kind of mystery, some of the most important quality of human beings will be optimal just because you wish so? doesn't make any sense. Right. I have a friend who is 63 years old. He used to be a runner when he was young. He gave up running. Now, a few years ago, he started again. He said, when I started again, I could not run more than five minutes without panting for breath. 
Now, last week, he ran the Montreal Marathon at 63. He had that potential, but it was useless until he actualized it. Mm -hmm. So same potential we have for mind training, but we, if we don't do anything, it's not going to happen because we wish so. I think, um, you know, in one of these dis panel discussions this week, Eckhart Tolle gave a good example of the fact that... Um, that this requires more discipline and training than we think, right? He was talking, <laughs> he gave the example of a Democrat, right? <laughs> who, who might have as a personal value, um, genuinely, uh, altruism and compassion, um, but, uh, but then might meet a Republican, right? He said, he said I mean, this really, this really comes, um, this is challenged in these real-world situations. And, uh, and then what happens when he meets the Republican? Does he meet the Republican and he's suddenly thinking, oh, this is a Republican. He elected George Bush for eight years. He's responsible for the economic crisis. Right? And, and, and I mean, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's an example that's very close to the ground. Um, but that's yeah, but really what, when these things become tested. So what's the problem with It's that? not about loving, I mean, you know, saying no, I, I, think, I yeah. want to end poverty in Africa. We all have that as a wish. But, but what you're talking about is a... Is a life discipline, and it has well, to I mean, do with myself, every day as well. I, you know, I was struck by that, that we need to put that in action in a mm -hmm. way. Oh, action doesn't mean like frantically running around all day long, which I'm unfortunately doing a bit too much. <laughs> but but being the exemplifying that in our life. So that's what led me. My only regret some years ago was not to have hands down trying to serve others. Mm -hmm. So when I had the possibility of doing that, I jumped into that. I mean, through the books, where I dedicate 100% of the royalties of my books to this Karuna, which means compassion, is one uh, foundation. Mm -hmm. And we carry you now 40 humanitarian projects. And the idea that action, compassion without action is a bit sterile. And as much as we can, my idea was to put myself at the service of others. And I'm, I'm absolutely grateful and delighted that I can now we have, a, we treat 100,000 patients in the, in the Himalayas, India, Tibet, and Nepal. We have 15 kids in the school that we build. It's not huge compared to some other big organization, but at least we did our best. And we, we you know, because, because of the spiritual training, we also do that in a way that helps us to keep less than 2% of our head, which shows that, you know, a, inner transformation help for the outer transformation. So my motto, in a way, will be to transform yourself to better serve others. Right. If you see in the humanitarian world, grains of sand that bring everything to an halt is corruption, clashes of egos, human factors, more than resources. So how to avoid that? Those are lack of human maturity. Mm -hmm. So it's not vain or futile exercise to perfect yourself to some extent before you serve others. Otherwise, it's like cutting the wheat when it's still uh, green and nobody is fed by that, by that. So we need a minimum of readiness to efficiently and wisely be at the service of others. So compassion needs also to be uh, sort of uh, enlightened by wisdom. Otherwise, it's blind. Mm -hmm. So I think both are necessary. Both are wise investment of time. You know, when you build a hospital, all the plumbery electricity for two, three years doesn't help anyone, but when it's ready, it's such a powerful tool. So like a human being, if you transform yourself to better transform the world, that's a nice balance. <laughs> right. I want to ask you, um, this, 
this gathering that we're at, and I, I think you find yourself in many gatherings like this where there's a collection of wise people, people who are practicing these things and um, finding an integrity. And here, you know, the Dalai Lama was here. There were a number of Nobel Peace Prize winners. And several people have said, and I hear this also in conversations I have, that we might be on the cusp of some kind of spiritual evolution, right? That people may, in fact, human beings may, in fact, be learning something. Um, and I think the fact that science is taking these um, spiritual disciplines, these spiritual technologies like meditation more seriously or one manifestation of that. Um, and yet we will go back to the places we live in. And there's, there's also um, outside gatherings like this we're then confronted again with um, a great deal that's wrong in the world. And I, I, don't, I wonder what your perspective is on um, where we are as a species, no, I, as a planet right now. No, I think ideas uh, change slowly, but sometimes they are tipping points. Mm -hmm. you know, for instance, the environment. You know, I don't know, 35 years ago or 40 years ago when... Rachel Carson's uh, book, right. Silent Spring, came out. You know, I was a teenager, bird watcher. And for us, it was a revelation. Yeah. But we were just this kind of lovers of nature, and nobody cared for that. And they thought it was just crazy ideas. Now it's a major preoccupation. It took a certain number of years, but it was all there yeah. already. So ideas like uh, we should work for, towards a more altruistic and compassionate society is taking momentum because also... Now it's not more a luxury, it becomes a necessity. Yeah. So what, what is an evolution uh, pressure is when it's sort of necessary for survival. So in, in ancient times, it's maybe fine for tribes to fight each other over hunting grounds or whatever. Nowadays, with precisely this interdependence and this globality, we are all part of one family. That's not just a nice, naive image. No. Right. They can only... Either we're all losers or all winners in terms of survival. Now, we can't say that uh, it's, it makes sense for just one nation to be powerful, rich, and so forth. If the whole world is starving, that will create immense wars and, and difficulties. And the environment can only be a, a transnational solution. So it's quite possible that taking in consideration sincerely, earnestly, the well-being of all, including animals, including the whole environment, will be the, so much the only way to survive that altruism become a, an evolutional force. Mm. Because in a way, it, it leads to survival. Right. While the lack of altruism and concern for others could lead to total catastrophe. So hopefully, <laughs> evolution will, find, will take all quickly enough so that you know, altruistic behavior become and not just seemingly altruistic behavior, which is selfishness in this guy, but right. real concern for all. Because after all, the true altruism is a genuine consideration for all sentient beings, whether they are your tribe, your relatives, or your own gene lines. Forget about that. <laughs> it has now to be concerned for all that lives. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, a, it's really interesting to see um, spirit, I mean, really is an example of spiritual insights, again, meeting um, a scientific interpretation of the world. I mean, well, you know, I, I really like to discuss more in depth with some of evolutionists because I think 
I want to know what will be the mechanism for a genuine, because they don't believe in genuine altruism. You know, they say you always, even though know, selfish genes, yes. you are even self-interest of, of your group. You know, if it's all your siblings and your tribe and mm -hmm. somehow your genes are, are getting on fine, even you died, no problem. But they have very hard time explaining genuine altruism. Someone who is not related to you, you don't expect anything in return. Um, there's no selfish motivation. It's purely altruistic. You are really concerned by others. You know, people who rescued Jew families in Second mm. World War, hiding them. They are not related. They cannot expect anything in return. No satisfaction They're on the moment. They're completely putting their lives in There danger. There is no any selfish motive you can find in that. It yeah. happens. Yeah. So altruism does exist. So now that's a, a very powerful moving force, and that's what we need now for humanity and for also animals and all those who are subject to suffering. Mm. Their survival now yeah. depends on genuine altruism. So maybe it will work. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so, otherwise we, <laughs> we all disappear. Something that I, um, I see as a, as a characteristic of, um, of you <laughs> okay, so you've you've issued declaimers that you're not the happiest man alive. I mean, this is, I mean, <laughs> I just want to say that. Yeah, it's just taken by you know, an English newspaper. Yeah, it's not based on scientific I data. <laughs> I apologize to my scientist friend. It is better than to be labeled the most unhappy person in the world. Fine, but it's, it rests on no scientific okay. evidence. Okay, but but let me just say this: a quality of you, and of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, um, and other very wise people I've come across, spiritual people, serious people. It's also a very robust um, sense of humor. Right? <laughs> He's always laughing. He's funny. Yes. And, um, and even before I met you, when I've seen pictures of you, you know, you, you're, you always have a smile on your face. And I, I want to know, um, uh, you know, how do you think, where does humor come into this, to wisdom? Well, humor comes with, you know, well, you know, when you are not, uh, first of all, you know, if the ego is not such a target that is always there, exposed to all the arrows of praise and blame and criticism and all that, and you are not too much, uh, you know, susceptible to that, basically you don't care to start with. You know, nothing to lose, nothing to gain <laughs> from all this noise of, oh, you are such a great guy or just, you are just a bastard. You know, it's just like, <laughs> what does it mean? It's like egos doesn't care. So it, it gives the sense of less vulnerability. It's a real strength. People think that a strong ego is a strength. Strong ego is ultimate vulnerability. You know, you are so right. preoccupied right. with that strong ego, you can't sleep anymore. Right. <laughs> but if his ego is transparent, you know, it doesn't matter. So fine. So a sort of lightness. And then also, because you have this real confidence, not come from strong ego, but from ego not being a target, you are much more available to others, so open to the world, and therefore, somehow, you know, the usual preoccupation that makes people sometimes so serious, precisely, are those worldly concerns, gain and loss, praise and blame, you know, some relatively pleasurable or unpleasant situations. Right. You know, I, I, I see that in, in Tibet very often. No, sometimes you find a very difficult situation. Our car, when we do those projects and schools and, and clinics, we get stuck in the middle of a river with our car. You know, big stream, it's raining. No, everybody will just, you can imagine some people screaming, you know, upset. Usually it ends up 
everyone is on top of the car cracking into laughter. Such a, <laughs> they think it's such a funny thing. <laughs> so there's a kind of, uh, you know, we do our best and there's things happen and why should you take it too seriously because you know, we'll survive that hopefully and after all what's the, what's the problem just one part of the journey and it's so much more fun if you take it like that than, than you know, making all these tantrums about things right. it's just precisely what we were mentioning before the way you interpret the world makes you know, I, I, I gave this example which struck me I was out, sitting outside our monastery once and it was monsoon time in Nepal lot of mud and water and we had put some bricks over about 20 to 30 meters to, to go from one brick to the other to cross that, that mess and uh, one person came uh, a foreigner and that person was just screaming how oh, is disgusting this place and wow and look and then she came I was sitting there and she's going to scold me for just damn me <laughs> And then so, okay. Then five minutes later, another person came, both were two ladies, and she was just hopping from one to the other, saying, oh, it's so <laughs> nice, it's such a fun, yeah. and when there is rain, there's no dust, and she was exactly the same situation, and she had a sense of lightness and humor. The other one was just like grumbling like crazy about it. So same situation, different perspective. Hmm. All right, that's your last word. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> I think you're tired, and I kept you a while. But uh, not too tired. It's okay. okay.